Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta rock band Mastodon is celebrating their 21st year together, and it's been an incredible couple of decades for them. Mastodon has released eight studio albums, written songs for movies and TV shows, appeared as wildlings on HBO's Game of Thrones, and won numerous awards, including the 2018 Grammy for Best Metal Performance. The band released a new album last month called Hushed and Grim and they'll celebrate by playing at Atlanta's newest music venue, the Eastern, this Wednesday. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes sits down with Mastodon guitarist Bill Kelleher later this hour. First, it's March of 2020. Alexander Sasha Sundarovsky is excited that his closest friends will finally gather in his favorite place on earth, the house on the hill. This is the setting for Our Country Friends, the new novel by Gary Steingart. And he joins us now via Zoom. Gary Steingart, welcome to City Light. Thank you, Lois. Great to be here. Reading the book now, post-vaccine, and since the tragic deaths of 2020 that led to our global reckoning with racism, parts of the story feel like distant history, yet they remind us of how this surreal time began and unfolded. At what point during the pandemic did you begin writing this novel? Well, I actually began it right away. It was, uh, I think, late March of 2020 when I started writing it. I had been writing a dystopian novel before, a kind of funny academic dystopian novel uh, set in a future where New York University, NYU, had taken over much of Manhattan. Funny hijinks ensued after that, but uh, given that the pandemic and the political situation in our country was becoming far more dystopian than anything even my 
very dystopian disposed mind could imagine, I very quickly switched gears and began to make up the eight characters that populate this book. Characters who are, in the most part, immigrants from all over the world or children of immigrants and a couple of uh, native-born Americans, but starting to put them together into my little menagerie in upstate New York, about 100 miles north of New York. Wow. Early in the book, you write, Russian is a language built around the exhalation of warmth and pain. Both those qualities are abundant in this novel as well. Would you introduce us to those main characters you mentioned? Sure. So as you mentioned, there's Alexander or Sasha Sendorovsky, and he's kind of an avatar for me in a way because he's a Russian novelist who spends most of his time in the countryside, as I do in upstate New York. His wife is Masha, and she's also Russian-born, unlike my wife, and she's a psychiatrist who deals mainly with elderly Russians who believe in these crazy conspiracy theories that have been going around. And they have a daughter, Natasha, so it's Sasha, Masha, and Natasha. And the daughter is adopted from China. She's about eight years old. She is very precocious and is undergoing a bit of an identity crisis. And to that little family, he's invited five guests. Three of them are his best friends, um, or I'm sorry, rather two of them are his best friends growing up. Uh, Karen Cho, a Korean American woman who has become incredibly wealthy because she has this app that works like a love potion. People take a photo of themselves and then they fall in love. And it's a big hit, but also has a lot of problems attached to it as many of the uh, spouses of those who have fallen in love are now suing Karen and her company. Uh, then there is Vinod Mehta. He's an Indian American gentleman who's also a best friend of Karen and Sasha and went to the same high school with them. And his life is not so great. He is uh, quite sick or has been quite sick. He's lost a lung to cancer. And then there's a Korean dandy named Ed Kim. And then uh, an American-born essayist from the South uh, called Dee Cameron. She's from South Carolina. And she grew up very poor. And she's of the left, but sometimes she also tacks far right when she needs more attention from social media. And into this group of friends is thrown a final uh, grenade, so to speak, and that's the actor. And we don't find out his first name until very late in the book. And the actor is this gentleman, one of the most attractive and handsome actors ever, ever lived. And everyone promptly falls in love with him. And he really wreaks havoc across the, this little bungalow colony of sorts by having all these different affairs. So uh, all of them are put together into this pressure cooker uh, the pandemic is happening, but it's not exactly happening in the bungalow colony, at least at first. Uh, it's happening elsewhere. The actor is the least likable of... <laughs> I, actually, I think he is the only unlikable character of the entire group. But, Gary, I have to say, if Sasha is your avatar, I think you're not being very kind to yourself because <laughs> you you are not selfish in that way. No, I, I like to take things that are familiar to me, take someone like me, but also sort of, you know, the way people change the sound levels. I like to think of what would happen if I was, I don't know, less successful, uh, perhaps less empathic. Uh, and so I, you adjust the character for that because you know, my life has, knock on wood, been fairly okay with a couple of exceptions. 
So um, there's not that much to write about in terms of characters because you need tension to have a character. So I think I would turn to maybe a younger version of myself, a younger, angrier, less happy, less psychoanalyzed, if you will, version of myself. The character of Vinut reflects on why Anton Chekhov is universally loved. Please tell us how the great Russian playwright informs both the structure and content of your book. Sure. So the book is actually structured like a four-act play with everything that that entails. And at the end of the book, I don't think I'm spoiling too much by revealing this, but a production of Uncle Vanya is staged. And plays like The Cherry Orchard and Uncle Vanya were heavily in my mind because so much of Chekhov's work is usually set in a country house. And also as I was writing it, I was rereading some of my favorite of his short stories uh, about love, gooseberries, the man in the shell, you know, all these short stories are set in the countryside. There's usually some protagonists who are telling stories about other protagonists. And at the same time, they're sort of looking at their lives and thinking, well, this didn't go right and that didn't go right, but this did go right. And this, this is okay. And they're also reevaluating their friendships. And all of this is very important because that's really the meat of this book. I mean, it's a pandemic novel, of course, but also friendships are the real, is the real uh, linchpin of this book. The pandemic is really just the, you know, what's happening is just the uh, background, the way, you know, if you were writing from 1933 to 1945, the uh, world, the upheavals of the world, and then the war that came would be sort of, no matter what you were writing, it was a love story or anything, obviously that would figure in, in your writing. And similarly, a book that's set in 2020 would of course encompass the pandemic. Sure. Why is the country estate with its bungalows so important to Sasha? Well, it's important to Sasha for, I think, pretty much the same reason it's important to me. That's another little autobiographical detail. When I was growing up, when I'd come to America, I didn't speak English well or pretty much at all. Uh, and we, there was a little bungalow colony, very cheap and poor and uh, very ramshackle kind of little bungalows, but uh, across the river from where I'm talking to you right now, across the Hudson River and uh, in the Catskill Mountains. And we would go there for the summers and our parents would stay behind working in the city, but our grandmothers and us would be upstate. And that was my happiest moments of my childhood because everyone spoke my language, which at that point was mainly Russian. And we just, you know, we horsed around, we were friends, we fell in love, all these different things happened. It was very sweet. Sasha pines for that very much. And in fact, that's why he has replicated and built, you know, four little cottages for all of his friends so that he can situate them there as well. I, in real life, only have one little cottage, a little guest house for my friends who also come up from the, from the city. Uh, that's been happening a little less under COVID, but some of the happiest memories of my present life are having my uh, friends revolve around having my friends over and grilling and cooking and drinking and all the good stuff that also happens uh, in this novel. So uh, that country aspect of it is very much important both to my childhood and to my life now as it is to Sasha's. If you are just joining us, this is WABE City Light. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with the author Gary Steinhardt about his new novel, Our Country Friends. You write that Sasha served as a diplomat between his two feuding parents for decades. What impact of that do we see in his behavior toward others? 
Well, I think Sasha is very, he's always worried that things will fall out between his friends and between his wife. He doesn't like fighting. Um, as the book progresses, certain secrets are revealed from the past. And so fights become inevitable. But for someone like him, who has always served, as you mentioned, as a diplomat between his parents, and that's also uh, congruent with my own experience. My parents don't fight very much now, but when we came to this country, and especially under the rigors of immigration, they were always fighting chiefly about money, of which we had very little. And I would always sort of try to interpose myself because I thought that you know, we were already so barricaded in by the, the country and not knowing the culture and the language and wearing these strange, very furry clothes that, uh, you know, we had to stick together at least as a unit of three. And so I, I very much uh, served as a diplomat and, and Sasha does that between his friends and also between his friends and his wife and also between himself and his wife so, <laughs> and himself and his child. So there's a lot of diplomacy going on. Indeed. At different points, certain characters took turns as my favorite in the book. I mean, I will not forget these characters. And while she isn't endearing, your introduction of Dee Cameron had me laughing and in awe of your writing. Would you read the second paragraph on page 41, please? Mm -hmm. She might have to put on an aggressive front, demonstrate her strength. Her essays were the equivalent of a new prisoner coming up to the toughest inmate in the can and slugging them right in the face. <laughs> he wrote with a disdain for weak-bellied sentiment mixed in with tough love observations about the social class that had recently welcomed her into their messy brownstones. Sometimes her prose devolved into regional drawl and one, what, what one review called youallisms. As a corollary, she owned a beautiful pair of 1970s cowgirl boots of a deep red color with rainbow stitching flaring out in sunburst patterns. Not that any of her kin had ever worn anything of the sort. Because she was tall and her face angular, her eyes a repository for a deep alien blue, she knew the boots and something simple like a, like a peasant blouse would bring out a host of Pavlovian reactions in a wide cross-section of educated East Coast men. All she had to do was open her mouth and confuse the situation. She had always been politically nebulous and often mentioned the fact that when Joan Didion was her age, Didion was the stylistic godmother minus the regionalism, she had been a Nixon supporter in the early 60s. My animus toward you runs on its own special fuel, she warned the reader at the start of her collection of essays. So y'all best mind your preconceptions. This pigeon will not be whole. <laughs> do not mess with D. And yes, with D. <laughs> I mean, I love that ingratiating is about as remote from her world as it could possibly be. And her very name is a literary reference, another of your playful way with words, that being to Boccaccio's The, Boccaccio's, the Decameron, which is a collection of stories traded by characters who were waiting out the Black Death in a Tuscan villa. Would you tell us about the framed quote that hangs in her cottage? Love takes off masks that we fear we cannot live without and know we cannot live within. 
And that's, of course, from James Baldwin. And I've known that quote for a while, but I don't remember how it came into my mind. But obviously, I was thinking of the masks that we were wearing during the pandemic, and which led me to a bunch of different thoughts because um, I've had friends who have been single forever who have fallen in love during the pandemic uh, and have developed relationships during the pandemic, which they, for some reason, couldn't have done before. And in part, I think they were, you know, they were when they met their future beloved, they were wearing uh, masks. So the masking was a very interesting part of the pandemic because we only got to see half of each other's faces when we saw each other's faces at all. So for somebody who's a writer and for somebody who writes about immigrants the way I do, and immigrants, of course, especially as they're adjusting to this country as I had when I was a kid, are always wearing a mask because you always have to adjust yourself to the uh, to what you perceive others need from you, and I know that that's true, of course, of many marginalized groups in America. The way you have to, I think, the term is code switch between uh, the way that you have been brought up to speak or look, etc., and what sort of genteel society expects from you. Uh, so all of these characters uh, have been wearing masks, and even the actor, who yes, is not the most lovable and cuddliest of characters, but is very much needed to provide some uh, ballast for this novel. Even he, of course, wears a mask quite a bit because of his very profession. So masks, and that quote from James Baldwin, I think, fit in very nicely into the into the book. Indeed. Nowadays, we often hear mention of self-awareness. I don't know if. That description is apt, but part of what's striking in this novel are references that characters make just as that thought may occur to the reader. For example, Masha compares Sasha's gathering with his friends to a personal reenactment of the big chill. I mean, it was a nanosecond after that registered in my head, Gary. In your creative process, do such associations and humor come as quickly as they feel on the page? Yes, very much so. I was just writing this and all of a sudden I remembered the big chill. And it's funny because I think some of our younger readers will have to look it up. Uh, (laughs) A movie in the 1980s and I remember being obsessed with that movie. It was on some network when I was a kid, we didn't see it in the movie theater. And I was obsessed with it because I didn't even, I did not understand all of it because I was a child and it was about very grown up relationships. It's the conceit of the movie uh, for those who haven't heard or seen it. It's a group of University of Michigan graduates, one of whom commits suicide and the rest of them gather for his funeral. And so, you know, it has some similarities to our country friends. There wasn't a suicide in this book, but all these friends are gathered because of a tragedy. In this case, it's the pandemic. But um, I remember being obsessed with that movie and not fully understanding it because I didn't understand grownups because I was a little kid and I didn't understand English well enough to get catch all of the nuances of, of language and class and all, all these things among these educated groups of people. But for some reason I thought, wow, if I ever, ever figured this, this movie out, I, I will have really become an American. So this, um, as this was going on, as I was writing this, I, I thought that Masha would maybe, because she also grew up around the time I came here and and was the same age as I am and the same age as Sasha, that she would probably make that reference. And then I went and downloaded The Big Chill and watched it for the first time in God knows how many years since the 80s and absolutely loved it still. Oh, Um, yes. And the soundtrack is so amazing. Of course, of course, the soundtrack, starting with, uh, I heard it from the grapevine. Yes. And I remember when I had enough pages together and I was sort of telling my brilliant editor 
about what the book, you know, he asked me what I was working on. And I said, I had abandoned that NYU novel and I was working on, uh, and I called it uh, Chekhov meets the big chill. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, okay, that sounds intriguing, you know. (laughs) Author Gary Steingart, his new novel is Our Country Friends. And we'll continue our conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Let's return now to my interview with the author Gary Steingart. His new book, Our Country Friends, is being hailed as the first great literary novel of the pandemic. One of the themes explored in the book is cultural identity. And here, Steingart explains how his characters' cultural backgrounds add to their understanding and respect for one another. I think this very much mirrors the kind of upbringing I had, where the first, some of the first good friends I made were sort of cross-cultural friends. I went to a math and science high school in New York City where many of the kids were Korean, Indian, Chinese, and many were Russian. And we were all sort of lumped together. And growing up in my college years, especially after college in my 20s, so many of my friends were from those backgrounds. And we all kind of, just as the characters in this book, we all kind of became closer than friends. There was almost a kind of parenting going on because our parents, though lovely people, were so, I think, overwhelmed by trying to make money, trying to make sense of this country in a way that we could and they never fully could. And their advice was always a little bit off. I was just finished an article for Esquire magazine about this very subject. And I was talking to some of my older fr- oldest friends about some of the advice, for example, romantic advice that, that their parents gave them. And one friend of mine who emigrated from India as a child said his father said, you know, your muscle tone is so poor, no woman will ever love you. So you have to become an engineer uh, to, to earn some money. <laughs> and we all had, we all got crazy advice like this, career advice, etc. So in a sense, I think we all turned to each other and we all did things for each other that many of us were only children like myself and we kind of all filled in for one another. So I remember I was the writer in the group. So I would write everyone's cover letters and everyone's uh, resumes and stuff like that. Another friend of mine had really good taste the way Karen does in this book. So she took us all shopping and helped us pick out clothes that made us look hip, you know? So all of these little sweet little overlaps that we had. So in some ways we were 
very close, almost like siblings. And like I said, sometimes almost like parents. So in this book, I take those basic kinds of relationships. And again, to add a little bit of tension, I create these dynamics of betrayal between all of them, betrayal in love, betrayal in careers, betrayal in social status, all of these different things that uh, add a lot of spice, hopefully, to the story. And I just see what happens and all kinds of things do happen. But that, that again, uh, fights between these friends hurt even more than fights between normal friends because these friendships are also stand-ins in some cases for, for all these other things like parenting and, 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 and romance and, and other things. Indeed. Thinking about the multicultural makeup of this group of friends made me wonder about the title of your book in another way. I thought of an emphasis on our country with friends as a subtitle or maybe appearing after a colon. Is that... Oh, I like that. Mm. That's not totally far-fetched. No. Because I thought that part of what you were pointing out is the richness of our country that's provided by immigrants, by refugees. Yeah, I think that's a great analysis. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, it's our country. Um, and, it, it, you know, the earliest books, the first couple of novels I wrote, and certainly my memoir, were very much about growing up and being my parents' child. And I think many of the novels of, of younger writers, especially those from either marginal groups or immigrant groups, are about that experience because you're very much trying to make sense of this duality, you know, am I this or am I that? And in this case, this is in some ways my most American novel because it really is about our country as you, as you um, wonderfully pointed out. So, uh, and our country consists of people like Benoit and Karen and Sasha uh, and Masha and Natasha and all of these uh, folks. Some of them have, you know, Americanized names like Karen, some, some don't. And, Together, they form their own kind of society. But they're also deeply American at this point. And the book isn't about them sort of negotiating their identities vis-a-vis -vis their parents uh, as, as one does when one is a child. They're, they are now fully American. Fully. Fully. And they now have to reckon with themselves as Americans while this country experiences tremendous problems. So that is, uh, you know, and, it, and another sort of complication is that their parents fled very problematic countries back in the day, whether it was, you know, Korea after the Japanese uh, colonialism or, or, and the civil war or India after partition with Pakistan or the Soviet Union after Hitler and Stalin and all those years of uh, communism. And their parents came here because they saw this country as a kind of safe harbor for them and even more importantly for their children. But in this year, in 2020, and one can argue even in a couple of years preceding that, all of that came under, under attack. The feeling of safety began to disappear. Um, the characters in this book are uh, fearing this truck with mysterious slogans in the back of it that keeps this black pickup truck that keeps circling their compound. And the mystery is eventually solved, but um, it adds even more tension because there's a kind of feeling of them being on this little island, this little, um, cottage, there's these little cottages in the middle of a, of a sea of people that they don't really know. So absolutely, there's a kind of sense of, well, our parents brought us here to be safe. But now in 2020, as this pandemic is raging, no one is really putting an end to it. Uh, the country is completely divided. Uh, what kind of safety can we expect? Hmm. And 
Sasha, the refugee, now believes the countryside will provide an added refuge. How do those staying in Sasha's idyllic community contrast with the people who live in the area year-round? You mentioned this ominous black truck. Well, I think it is, it's interesting because there's, there's an issue of kind of class. Uh, the area in which I am speaking to you from is now seeing an exodus of people from the last couple of years from New York City uh, with the pandemic and even before there was some, but the pandemic really brought it to the fore. Uh, entire communities are being transformed. Uh, there's this kind of post-industrial city, very charming, but very down on its heels, down at its heels called uh, Kingston, New York, which all of a sudden is turning into uh, parts of Brooklyn. In fact, I was getting my license renewed at the uh, DMV and, and a woman came out and said, if you're from Brooklyn, go home. We're not going to remove that. And so that's to, to me, you know, there's this fascinating kind of contrast because a lot of these people are leaving New York. They Many can't afford it. Many have not finally realized that they can have a family up here and telecommute. Um, but that there's also a kind of gentrification going on, which may not be too pretty with uh, people who have lived here all their lives um, being priced out of the area. And of course, there's the political difference. I mean, this area in which I live is possibly one of the most purple areas in America in the sense that it's literally 50-50 in terms of registration for Democrats and Republicans. And of course, with the people coming up from New York being more Democratic and the locals being far more Republican. So it's a kind of interesting Petri dish to look at uh, to begin with. But also all the people who are hiding out in Sasha's um, country home had the same feelings that I did, which is a feeling of guilt toward everyone left behind in New York. Because as I was writing this in March and April, New York really became uh, an abattoir. There were so many people dying. And the very center of that death was occurring in exactly the places where Sasha and Masha and Vinod and Karen all grew up, which was this part of Queens, uh, Elmhurst, Jackson Heights, all of these areas which now contain and have always contained huge amounts of immigrants many of whom did not have access to health care, many of whom were frontline workers and had no choice but to work during the, uh, the worst of the pandemic. So there was a feeling that I certainly shared with the characters in this book of, you know, here we are, we are relatively safe because, you know, everything around here was, was very, um, you, you would go to a grocery store and they would have everything set up for you and ready, you would just pick it up. There was, a, if you didn't want contact with another human being, you could survive without it. Whereas, of course, that wasn't true for, say, frontline workers uh, living in, in Queens and having to support their families through their frontline work. So, yeah, it, it, there was definitely a lot of guilt. And I think I shared that guilt with the, with the characters mm. in the book. Well, anyone with a conscience would. Would you read on page 238, beginning with the words, the mysterious bird? Okay. The mysterious bird wearing yellow shoulder pads had come out with her family for a makeshift worm picnic in the monumental forest just behind the porch. Two hatchlings dazed by the sunlight, happy because they had not yet experienced the full cold of this continent, peeked at each other while their dad sat on a high branch singing about the journey that had brought all of them here. Not a love song exactly, but a rendering of his life and worth as a beast of this earth, as a parent, as a lover, as a migrant, as a bird. And if we are to suspend our secular beliefs, even for half a paragraph, we can imagine the migrated souls of all the human ancestors presently at table, 
looking over their bloodline progeny, gathered together over the familiarity of cabbage and fried rice and the unfamiliarity of a meat disc between two circular pieces of bread, happy as parents in a playground when all of the children assembled play together quietly and at peace and no one's young feelings are hurt and everyone will go home still innocent. It's gorgeous, Gary. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I, I, I did. Sometimes when you write a paragraph, you feel that it works. Very often I don't. I'm, I'm, I'm a heavy critic of my work as I think every writer should be. But uh, I remember writing that and thinking, yeah, I, I get that bird. <laughs> and, and as I was writing it, I was on the porch and there was a, a yellow shoulder padded bird who was singing very loudly. And I sort of tried to imagine if he was a migratory bird, just like the characters, the human characters in this book, uh, what he might be singing about. And that's sort of the, uh, the things that I put into his little bird brain. Oh, I loved it. I've read many reviews and several reviewers have said this is the first great literary novel of the pandemic. Do you feel like there's more to be written about this surreal time of ours? Well, you know, I mean, part of the thing is that when the pandemic started happening and I saw Obviously, there was a different administration in power, but when I saw the response of the government to this, I thought this is not going away anytime soon. Uh, when I saw the response of you know, these false theories about the virus, uh, all this misinformation going around, I thought, no, this is gonna be with us for a while. So in a sense, you know, as somebody who writes a lot about the present, I could see myself still writing about this a couple of years from now, you know. But also the other part of this is, and I think I've, I've mentioned this before, um, I feel like we are entering a time of great consequences, of great disasters. You know, I, I just did a series of readings in California and in uh, Portland, Oregon, and, uh, you know, California, of course, now suffers wildfires on a regular basis, each more devastating than the last. Portland, which I had always thought had such a temperate climate, especially if you don't mind the rain, uh, you know, just had 115 degree weather during the summer, which killed many, many people, especially the elderly who didn't have air conditioning. We are, I think, in this country going to be living with one crisis after another, and we on this planet are going to be living with one crisis after another. Ecological, political, um, perhaps more uh, pandemics uh, coming down the line. So in a sense, if you're going to write about the present, you have to write about the fact that we are facing this new background, the same way as I mentioned before that somebody writing during World War II had to acknowledge that there was a all-consuming war going on. And I, 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 it's, it saddens me a little. It makes me want to go back to Chekhov's days. Although, you know, if you reread Uncle Vanya, which I, which I used in this, in this book, even, even the characters in that uh, play are, are wondering about, you know, all the forests being cut down in Russia in the late 19th century uh, and, and what that would portend for the environment. So these subjects have always been with us, but now I think they're going to be a lot more accentuated. And I think it's going to be harder and harder to write anything, whether it's uh, you know a, a television or a film script or a novel or or an essay or anything, without acknowledging the fact that this background is on fire behind us at this point. Indeed, Generation L, as you label it. Yes, Generation Last is what people call Nat. Unfortunately, in oh, this book, I love Nat. She is <laughs> so in, in the beginning. Her anxiety comes through so strongly but then i mean she is one of your funniest characters yeah 
She's a sweetheart. Yeah, it's, you know, I've got someone who has a little kid. How old is your child? Well, the same age as Nat. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a boy, but um, he's uh, eight years old. Uh, yeah, it's very sweet. It's sweet because, you know, they're, you're, you're both very happy they're there, but you also very much worry about, uh, you know, having brought them into a world like this. So it's, it's very anxious, but it's also the best part of your day. Author Gary Steingart. More information about his new novel, Our Country Friends, is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll revisit our interview with local rock legends Mastodon ahead of their Wednesday night show at the Eastern. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. The Atlanta rock band Mastodon, composed of Troy Sanders, Brent Hines, Brand Daler, and Bill Kelleher is celebrating their 21st year together. And for the unfamiliar, it's been an incredible couple of decades for them. Mastodon has released eight studio albums, composed songs for movies and TV shows, appeared as wildlings on HBO's Game of Thrones, and won numerous awards, including the 2018 Grammy for Best Metal Performance. The fact that Mastodon was also nominated for Best Rock Album that same year is a testament to just how unique their style has become. In celebration of their new album, Hushed and Grim, the band will be playing at the Eastern this Wednesday, November 24th. Earlier this year, guitarist Bill Kelleher spoke with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes over Zoom, and they started their conversation discussing the band's difficult-to-define sound. Most people describe your music as metal, but I think fans would put more weight on so many other things. There's a bit of thrash in there. There's some punk, there's psychedelic, and there's full-on rock and roll. When you're in a position to have to describe your music, what do you usually go for? Um, That's pretty close, honestly. <laughs> right on. Uh, yeah, the way I kind of look at it, it's easiest to just tell people, yeah, we're a metal band. It depends on who's asking me. If it's like someone's dad who's like, you know, in their 70s, like, oh, you play music? I'm like, yeah, we're like hard rock, heavy metal. And they're like, okay. But if it's someone who's maybe younger and heard a lot of our contemporaries or someone who grew up on Thin Lizzy, Rush, Metallica, you know, Slayer and Tool, I'm like, we're kind of all those bands mixed in into one kind of soup. But, you know, I always looked at it where I come from a very punk rock, thrash metal background, being from uh, Western New York, uh, Braun and I, you know, together. Braun, Braun has a lot of, you know, Genesis, King Crimson, 
proggy style stuff mm-hmm. in his repertoire of musical taste. I mean, his musical tastes, well, all of ours, you know, they're all over the map. But, you know, when I first met Braun 20, 30 well, like going on 30 years now. Oh my gosh. Oh, you know, you listen to a lot of Bjork and, you know, the Bee Gees and Amazing. yeah, and all the way to King Diamond and Slayer. But, you know, I was in bands with him back in the early 90s and I just assumed, oh, well, this guy's, he's really into metal. But when I saw his record collection and, and would go over his house, I was like, oh, that's cool. Cause I'm, I'm kind of the same way. You know, I grew up listening to stuff that was on the radio because that's all there was. But once I heard like, by accident the dead kennedys Mm. everything i knew about music changed i was just like wow what is this and then i got onto the ramones and once i went from listening to like you know led zeppelin and trying to play that stuff on guitar to hearing the ramones i was like i can actually play this stuff and i can i can start a band and i and i did immediately like i was 15 i got a guitar all my friends were learning these crazy guitar solos by Eddie Van Halen and, and probably still are. And I was like, I don't have time for all that stuff. You know, I, it's, I want to get out there and start playing. So once I discovered punk rock music, it was like the freedom of, oh, so I don't have to go to Berkeley or, you know, take guitar lessons for the next 10 years in order to be in a band. It's more about the songwriting than how proficient you are. And I took that and I ran with it. And uh, all our musical styles are in there. When we came down here, down south, you know, Brent and Troy kind of brought this, um, I mean, Brent Brent had this originally kind of had this real sludgy, really low tune guitar sound with a lot of hybrid picking stuff, which I can only assume came from, you know, playing banjo or playing sort of country, like kind of hillbilly music, you know, which he does play a lot of surf rock stuff and um, all that stuff's amazing. So we're definitely a hybrid of a lot of different genres, but the main core is like rock. Right. You know, in fact, I was just playing our record for a guy I kind of know. He's one of our tenants over at uh, Ember City and starting up a, a newspaper. And he was doing an interview for uh, West End Sound, which is my recording studio with my partner, Tom Tapley. And we were talking about the new record. I was like, yeah, we recorded it right here. And he's like, oh, cool. I'd love to hear a little bit. And I started playing him some. And he's a band guy, too. He's like, wow. He's like, I really haven't listened to you guys since the early days, about, you know, 15, 16 years ago. I'm like, oh, we're, we're a totally different band now. He goes, this sounds like more rock and roll, like like a more mature type of band altogether. And I was like, well, it is because we've we've grown. It's been, you know, we've been a band for 21 years. Which is phenomenal that anyone could keep any relationship for 21 years, I feel like is is a feat within itself. But for an artistic endeavor to last for so long with the same exact members is phenomenal. Yeah. When we first started playing together, I mean, I knew we had something really special. I never in a million years, I didn't really see much further than like my next beer. You know what I mean? Or our, <laughs> our next gig. It was like, Oh, cool. We're doing this in 20 minutes. Great. We're on stage in, in an hour. Great. Cool. Show me where's the stage. I'll get up there and play. And when it's time to go, we'll drive to the next venue. And that's just kind of how we lived for like the first five years, just by the seat of our pants, really. And I was totally complacent. I was like, this is great. This is what I've always wanted to do is just play music. And we were making a little bit of money, but all the money went right into the band, which was 
fill the gas tank. And anytime we'd have, you know, money to split up, it was like, we need an oil change or, or the engine blew up or new tires. And it was just like, that kind of started getting old, you know, but I just remember being like happy as to actually just be able to do it. And, and it's not an easy feat by any means. You know, we, we went out there with nothing except the guitars on our backs and, uh, the nine songs that we had learned together and just started just doing it. Cause people ask me all the time, well, how do you make, how do you make it? I'm like, that's a really vague question. Like there is no answer to that except for you just get in the van and you just go every day. And I'm still quote making it, you know, there's no, there's never a point in your life. Cause I'm asked that a lot too. Like, what was the point in your life when you realize that you've made it? I'm like, well, I'm still not there yet. It's like every Every day I'm struggling to make it somehow, some way, you know, it's, it's not just something you put down. It's something that you're always carrying around with you. And, you know, I'm always working on something for the band, whether it's, you know, selling merch in our downtime now, or writing a new song or what our next video release is going to look like, or artwork or whatever. It's always every day. It's something. So it's a nonstop work schedule. Right. And you said that people ask you, when did you know you made it? And I understand your answer. And it's true. And you have to keep creating and keep trying new things. But there had to be a moment when you got nominated for your first Grammy, that something clicked in you like, holy moly, we've been nominated for a Grammy. I mean, yeah, but I think we were so busy when we had like Warner Brothers and like Sony and Interscope and Capitol Records all inviting us out for lunch and taking us out for drinks and courting us. That It was like the stuff, you know, you see in movies. It was exactly like that. You get this big cheesy guy from whatever record company. Oh, hey guys, I want to take you out, get you wasted and drunk, and then we'll talk about business. And I'm like, you know, after a few drinks, I'd be like, well, listen, man, I don't never talk business when I'm drinking because right. that's the worst time to make any decisions. Not that we played them at all, but we just kind of played hard to get because we were very hard to get. We were busy. We were working. We didn't care about like, oh, Warner Brothers wants to offer you like a million dollars to like sign with them. We were more afraid of that because we're like, well, we've heard horror stories of like once these big record companies take over, then everything changes. They want to turn you into like a radio band. And we're not that. We don't want to be that. We just enjoy doing what we're doing. Yeah. And you guys have existed for 21 years doing exactly what you want to do and creating some really unique and constantly evolving music. Right. So you mentioned your videos earlier, and I can't talk to you without bringing up Asleep in the Deep, which is an incredible video for a great song, but also possibly one of the greatest cat videos ever created. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about that psychedelic trippy video and who came up with the idea? Uh, I think that was Braun and Skinner, who's the artist, did um, the album cover for Once More Around the Sun. And he's just a good friend of ours. And I think Braun had been, you know, he'll just like come into practice some days and say, I got this crazy idea for a video. I'm like, okay, let's hear it. He'd be like, I was dreaming last night that like my cat, he sneaks out at night because he really, he really does. I'll let him out to pee or whatever, but he, you know, he goes off for a few hours and it's like the life of the cat and what the cat does while, you know, while he's out on his adventure and we're, 
we're inside sleeping, you know, just thinking it's it's just an animal going outside to like catch bugs or whatever. But no, he's off saving the world and climbing mountains and, and doing all these crazy things that we'd never imagined cats would do, living a, sec- a, a secret life. So that's that's, that's right. where it was based on. Yeah. Going on Lord of the Rings style adventures. Yeah. Really amazing stuff. So videos have to be a fun part of the creative process. But in general, do you like writing, recording, playing live? Which part of the process gets you most excited when you know that it's going to be coming up? Well, I mean, it's kind of all those things in that order. Writing is where, you know, I, I it's really hard to just say, and we get this from the record company once in a while. It's like, oh, hey, we need a, we need a song for this movie. and We needed it yesterday. So can you guys just whip up a song? It's like, oh no, gosh. I can't really. I just I can't force like creativity. You know, I have to like kind of sit and let it come to me. Otherwise, it sounds contrived, you know. So I do have a studio in my house where I'm calling you from now. And uh, I built it so I could just come down here and kind of try to relax and get away from pressures of, of normal everyday stuff. Just kind of let stuff flow, which it does, you know. And when I get on something, you know, it's the excitement of like when I get one or two parts together and then a third part. That's to me, it gets very exciting. But mm-hmm. I feel like the real excitement is when you're in the studio and it's actually going to tape or it's like, man, I, I remember when this riff was just a little baby and, you know, we're nurturing it and trying to get it to grow into something bigger. And oh, a little baby riff. Yeah. It's like growing up now and, it, and it's actually going into the song because for me, it's um, it's very cathartic to get those riffs out of my system and out of my head. It'll bother me that I have all these riffs, but they don't have friends like they don't have <laughs> Uh, you know, someone will be like, well, when did you write that, the song for Emperor Sand? And I was like, well, I actually wrote, the album came out in 2017, but I wrote the riff in like 2012. Oh, wow. You are nurturing riffs. Yeah, well, the riff just didn't, you know, it didn't feel right with anything else until something else, this one riff just came along. And that's when the excitement happens, like, oh, yeah, that's, that's the one I knew I was waiting for the right one. And to me, it's cathartic because I can purge this riff out of my system. And basically my means of like writing a song is I just am always playing guitar and I have my phone with me. So I'll record an idea that I think is good. And then I'll just kind of move on to the next thing. Later when I have time, I'll go through all those riffs. and I'll be like, that's good. That's garbage. That's good. That's good. Then I'll kind of dump those out and put them into my computer and I'll start messing with them and start trying to make them even better. And then trying to find friends for them to play with. And it doesn't always work. I kind of write one or two riffs at a time. And it's just, you know, it's hard for me to sit down and go, I'm just going to write an entire song like right now because I like twists and turns and I like the song to go around in, in different places. Well, I like how much you nurture your riffs and find them friends to grow with and then set them free into the world. Right. Thank you. Good job. Bill, you have a reputation as a really wonderful family man. And so many of us struggle with work-life balances. And I was just wondering if you have any advice for people, because you work really hard to nurture a beautiful family. I'm going to have to pass that on to my wonderful wife, because raising two teenage boys right now is, is very difficult. And she's the academic one. I'm the more, like, we play good cop, bad cop a lot. And uh, I'm usually the good cop where I'm just like the easygoing dad, like, okay, yeah, that's cool, guys, do whatever you want. And she's the one holding them responsible for what colleges are you going to be looking at and what do your Chinese homework and this and that. And I'm because I'm like, I don't know Chinese. I can't help him. But (laughs) 
you know, I just try to be at least be home and be present. You know, I mean, it's you say that, but it's like I feel like to my kids, I'm like the most uncool dad their friends think i'm cool they're like man your dad's in this really cool band and they're like yeah 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 seen it all before you know i mean i definitely work hard for my family and try to do as much as i can because i don't have a college education and this music thing is all i've got you know so i'm trying to pay the bills and you know be around and cook dinner and do like normal dad stuff you know my kids are going on 17 and i feel like in the early days i wasn't around that much because i was constantly touring and kind of immature and not really ready to be a father and and not really understanding what being a father meant. I mean, I'm just doing my part really. And that's, that's really all it is. is I just do your part and then maybe do a little extra. Mastodon guitarist Bill Kelleher speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drogues. The band released a new album last month called Hushed and Grim, and they'll celebrate by playing at Atlanta's newest music venue, The Eastern, this Wednesday, November 24th. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Amy Ray of the Indigo Girls and Kevin Kinney of Driving and Crying stop by. They'll be playing at the Georgia Justice Project's Benefit Concert this Sunday, November 28th at City Winery. Plus, we'll hear about the Atlanta Shakespeare Company's first-ever all-teenage production on the main stage of Love's Labor's Lost. City Light senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, And I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.